Section 12 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Denham. Chapter 3 Habsburg and Valois 2 by Stanley Leiths. Part 4 Throughout this period, there have been two main plots in European history, the one centering in Germany and concerned with the questions of religious reform, the other centering in Italy, and leading to the permanent settlement of territorial questions in Europe. The plots are interwoven, and it has been only possible in the foregoing pages occasionally to indicate important points of contact but each can be to some extent isolated. The German plot is reserved for full treatment in later chapters. The Italian plot has for its chief actors on the one side Spain and the Netherlands, on the other side France, while Savoy and the lesser states of Italy each contribute their share to the action. The internal affairs of Italy have received, in the description of the main plot, such attention as space permitted, and as was necessary, to explain the forces at work. But the internal affairs of France, Spain, and the Netherlands have been left aside. Yet some knowledge of these is required, if we are to understand the power exerted by each in the forcible settlement of European questions. The course of the reform movement in France is related below. The institutions of France are described in the first volume of this history. It remains only to give some account of those internal developments and changes that affected the activity of France as a European power. In the institutions of France there is little change to record. The absolute monarchy had been already established, and was further developed by the school of legists, who had their headquarters in the University of Toulouse. At their head was the Chancellor Duprat. Their principles and their action aimed at the continuous extension of the royal power. From the king they received their employment and their reward. To his strength they owed everything. All their efforts were directed to its increase both in state and in church. In the church especially the Concordat of 1516 proved a valuable instrument in their hands. The absolute authority of the crown over the church is proved by the lavish grants frequently made by the clergy to the king, enforced at need by the seizure of property and by the proposals to sell clerical lands for the king's benefit put forward in 1569 at Saint-Germain. The clergy then offered willingly 16,600,000 livres to avoid this danger, so real did it appear. The old Gallicanism of the pragmatic died hard, finding its last strongholds in the parliaments and the universities and was not finally defeated until the Lie de Justice of 1527, 
which removed all jurisdiction relative to high ecclesiastical office from the Parlement and gave it to the Grand Conseil. The old Gallicanism was replaced by a new royal Gallicanism, which resented interference with the ecclesiastical affairs of France from beyond the Alps, but placed the church at the mercy of the king. In consequence of this subjection of the French church to the king, the clergy of France fell into two well-marked divisions. Those who held or hoped for rich ecclesiastical promotion from the king, and the poor parochial clergy, who thought and suffered, and whose importance as a political factor will be seen in the wars of religion. Though the general lines remained unaltered, administrative changes can be perceived. The elevation of Jacques de Bonne de Semblancé, 1518, to the cognizance of all the king's finances, extraordinary as well as ordinary, shows the desire for some unification, but his fall in 1527 proves that the new arrangements were not supposed to have worked well. The establishment of the Trésor de l'Épargne in 1523 shows the same effort for centralization. This measure weakened the Trésorier and Généraux, and brought the whole question of finance under the eyes of the King's Council. The scope of the Trésor de l'Épargne was gradually widened, and in 1542 a more radical reform was introduced. The old financial districts were abolished, and sixteen new centres were established for the receipt of all funds arising from the areas assigned to them. These reforms were in the right direction, but did not go far enough. The sources of revenue were unchanged. The tie was still the mainstay of the government, and was increased at will. In 1543 it reached a figure higher than in the time of Louis XI. Extraordinary supplies were raised by the sale of domain lands, and by the creation of new offices intended to be sold. The consequent multiplication of unnecessary officials, each anxious to recoup his expenditure, was the gravest abuse of the time. Under Francis I the system of aid was gradually extended to the provinces which had hitherto enjoyed immunity, and in spite of solemn engagements, the Carducel of Guienne was first, 1541, raised to three-eighths, and then, in 1545, the Gabelle du Sel, with its system of compulsory purchase, was put in full force in all the southwestern provinces. The revolt of La Rochelle, 1542, and of Guienne in general, 1548, did not prevent the execution of these decrees. Similarly, in the Department of Justice, changes are rather administrative than constitutional. The introduction of the Presidio, a board of judges appointed for each baillage or sénéchaussée, and intermediate between the Parlement and the courts of first instance, was probably advantageous to the people, though its immediate object was the raising of money by the sale of the new offices. 
The Edict of Vieux Cotteret, 1539, was a great landmark in the administration of justice and in the history of legal procedure in France. It instituted the use of the French language in the courts, and superseded ecclesiastical jurisdiction in the great majority of cases by the lay tribunals. The clergy, in 1552, paid three millions of crowns to recover these rights of jurisdiction, but apparently the king did not fulfil his share in the bargain. The old military system changed slowly. The mounted archers were gradually being separated from the gendarmes, whose following they had originally constituted. As the importance of hand firearms increased, the number of archers was diminished, and some attempt was made so to strengthen the defensive armour of horse and man as to meet this new weapon of offence. Chevaux-Léger, trained after the Stradio fashion, and other varieties of cavalry began to appear, but in infantry France was still deficient. The attempt of Francis I, 1543, to form seven provincial legions, each of six thousand foot, alarmed the gentry by placing arms in the hands of the peasantry, and for this reason, or because of France's habitual inconsequence, it was abandoned, and only served as a pretext for levying the additional impost for which this measure was made an excuse. Thus the chief interest of the time for France consisted in the persons who conducted the government. The system might not change, but the spirit in which it was administered depended on the king and the persons in whom he had trust. Inattentive as he was to business, the character of Francis I had a marked effect upon the history of his reign. The profuse expenditure on his court must have reacted on his foreign policy. The cost of the court is estimated by a Venetian ambassador as amounting to one million five hundred thousand crowns a year, i.e. about three millions of livres tournois. Of this sum, six hundred thousand crowns went in pensions. The king's buildings, important as they are in the history of art, weighed heavily upon his people. The influence of the king's mistresses, Madame de Chateaubriand and Madame d'Etampes, and of his son's mistress, Diane de Poitiers, decided the fate of ministers, if not of nations. In the early years of the king's reign, and particularly during his captivity, the influence of the queen-mother, Louise of Savoy, was predominant. Her powerful will and vigorous though narrow intellect were not without their value for France, but her rapacity was unlimited, and led to the treason of the Duke of Bourbon, the most important domestic incident of the reign. During his early years, Francis was dominated by Bonivet, and to a less extent by Lautrec and Lescun. During his later life, 1541-7, to Admiral Annebeau de Retz and the Cardinal de Tournon came to the front. The Duc d'Anguin also enjoyed so much favour that his accidental death was ascribed by court gossip 
to the act of the Dauphin himself. In the king's middle life Philippe de Brion had considerable power, but none of these courtiers can be said to have possessed a definite scheme of policy, or to have worked for any definite end. More important was the part played by Anne de Montmorency. So early as 1522, Montmorency became a marshal of France. In the negotiations for the king's freedom after Pavia, he took a prominent part, and was shortly afterwards appointed Grand Maître, 1526, and from that time until 1541 he was the most conspicuous person at the king's court. He was governor of Languedoc, a post previously held by the constable de Bourbon, the duties of which he executed as a rule by deputy. The tendencies of his policy were favourable to the emperor. He was unwilling to break the peace, to form alliances with the Protestant princes or with the sultan. Thus the period of his influence shows a certain touch of moderation. Montmorency was not always able to make his counsels prevail, but their weight was always on the side of compromise. In the conclusion of the Treaty of Cambrai, his influence is especially to be seen. On the other hand, there is little reason to believe that the Grand Maître contributed anything masterly to the inconsequent foreign policy of Francis, any notable ideas of strategy to his army. His intellect was mediocre, and his most brilliant achievement was the devastation of Provence in 1536, which frustrated the invasion of Charles. In 1538 he reached the culmination of his fortunes under Francis when he was created Constable of France. The interview at Aigues belongs to this period, when his influence was perhaps at its height. He must have the responsibility of the policy which allowed Charles a free hand in the chastisement of Ghent, 1540. The failure of this policy left France isolated, unable to rely either upon England or upon the German Protestants. His fall, however, in 1541, was rather due to a court intrigue, to the fear of Francis of his heir apparent, to the jealousy of Madame d'Etampes and of Diane de Poitiers, than to the actual failure of his schemes. The party of Madame d'Etampes won the day, and the constable retired into private life. Francis retained so much animosity against him that he is said to have warned his son before his death not to admit Montmorency to his favour. But the advice, if given, had little effect, and immediately on his accession Henry recalled the constable to the royal councils, and even paid the arrears of his pensions for the years of his suspension. The alliance between the constable and Diane was intimate, but she perceived the danger of having him all-powerful. The princes of the House of Guise, cadets of the sovereign House of Lorraine, and nearly related to the houses of Anjou and Bourbon, were the instruments whom she found. Their father, Claude, Duc de Guise, a contemporary of Francis I, 
had not succeeded in pushing his own fortunes at court, but had nevertheless found opportunities to serve the king by levying troops for him and otherwise, so that he was able to secure dignities for himself with officers and benefices for his relations. His brother Jean, Cardinal of Lorraine, was not inconspicuous at the court of Francis and in the history of the French Renaissance. But the high fortunes of the family begin with the sons of Claude, among whom are preeminent Francis the soldier, afterwards Duc de Guise, and Charles, Archbishop of Reims, and afterwards Cardinal. Under Henry the Second, the places of power and profit the spoils of discarded favourites, the determination of the king's policy, are divided between Montmorency and the Guises, while Diane de Poitiers secured through their rivalry the decisive intermediate position. The Guise policy was aggressive, enterprising, provocative. Montmorency was more cautious and favourable to peace. To the former were due the League of Rome and the rupture of the Truce of Vaucelles, to the latter the Truce of Vaucelles, and above all the Peace of Cateau-Combrécis. All alike were zealous Catholics, all alike rapacious and greedy. In view of the powerful elements disputing the supremacy over her husband, Catherine de' Medici wisely kept in the background. Her capacities for rule and intrigue were not seen until a later age. Montmorency had the advantage through his powerful character, his industry, and will. The Guises, through their skill in winning the people and the interests to their side, in the church, in the army, in the Parlement, their influence was great and was carefully developed. On the other hand, the immense ransoms exacted from Montmorency in 1559 for himself and his relatives impoverished his estate, and the peace of Cateau-Compressis was unpopular and diminished his credit. Thus, after the death of Henry II, the advantage lay with the younger rivals of the constable. The changes in the system of the Spanish monarchy during the period are even less significant than those in France. The Cortes of Castile continued to meet and to retain their hold upon finance. The Servicio became a regular impost, voted every three years. On the other hand, the Alcabala was a ground for frequent bargaining between the king and the Cortes, and the advantage fell to the latter, for the total net income raised from this source did not increase during the reign, while the purchasing power of money was diminished by at least one-half. The real limitation of the royal power in Spain is seen in the refusal of all three estates, exceptionally summoned to the Cortes of 1538, to agree to Charles' proposal to raise money by a new excise on meat. The power of the crown over the Cortes, if it was increasing, was increasing slowly, and its increase was due to the extension of royal authority in the towns, where the royal corregidor was becoming more autocratic, and the regidores themselves were appointed by the crown. The pressure of the hidalgos, 
for admission to municipal office, which is a notable feature of the time, would tend also gradually to divorce the ruling class in the towns from those who carried on its business and felt the real pinch of tyranny or maladministration. In Spain, more than elsewhere, the interests of the Church and the Crown were closely linked. The Church looked to royal protection against heresy and against the Cortes. The King looked to the Church for supplies in time of need. He had its good government thoroughly at heart. He supported and moderated the action of the Inquisition so far as he could, for the Inquisition, though based on royal authority, was not entirely under his control. The forcible conversion of the Moriscos of Valencia in 1529 and following years attests the zeal rather than the wisdom of Charles. The flight of a large part of this industrious class, and the discontent and apprehensions of those who remained, living as they did in constant fear of the holy office, was a main cause of the impoverishment of a considerable part of Spain. Charles seems himself to have perceived his error, and the severity of the decrees against the Moriscos was considerably relaxed during his later years. In Spain also the administrative developments are more conspicuous than the constitutional. The business of government was becoming more and more complicated. Under Ferdinand and Isabella we have already the councils of state, of finance, and of Castile, besides the council of Aragon, and in addition the councils of the Inquisition, of the military orders, and of the Cruzada. Under Charles we have in addition the Chamber, the Council of War, the Council of the Indies, the Council of Flanders, and the Council of Italy. The several fields of these councils, with a monarch who was absent from Spain for one half of the total period of his reign, required to be carefully limited and circumscribed. This led in its turn to the transaction of more and more business by writing, and that to red tape and its accompanying delays, so that the excessive elaboration of bureaucratic methods tended to hamper and impede the dispatch of business. This became even more conspicuous in the time of Philip. The problem of the decline of Spain has often occupied the minds of historians who are at a loss to discover why the country which filled so large a place on the European canvas during the sixteenth century afterwards fell into impotence and decay. But the contrast has generally been exaggerated. Spain was never very rich and never very powerful. Individual Spaniards showed great enterprise and great talents. Ferdinand, and after him Charles V, obtained from their country all the energy of which it was capable. The Spanish foot-soldier had admirable qualities. But the work of Charles V depended as much upon the Netherlands as upon Spain. Italian enterprise was supported as much from the Low Countries as from Spain, and from both together support was always insufficient and had to be eked out by local oppression. No great national impulse raised the Habsburgs to the head of Europe 
the conquest of the Indies was due more to good fortune and the enterprise of a few men than to the greatness of the Spanish nation. When Spain lost the stimulus of great rulers, when she was deprived of the efficient support of the Netherland commercial wealth, when she was thrown upon her own resources, then the true weakness of the national character disclosed itself. The Spaniards could never be a great nation, because they were never industrious. Nevertheless, if Spain ever had an age of industry, it was in the time of Charles V. From the time of the conquest of Mexico, an immense opening was offered to Spanish trade. Charles was anxious to encourage this trade. In 1529 he opened the export trade to a number of cities of the east and the north, and broke down to some extent the monopoly of Seville. As a consequence, many industries increased by leaps and bounds. The silk industry in Toledo and Seville, the cloth industry in Toledo, Cordova, Cuenza, and Segovia, reached considerable dimensions. The same stimulus reacted upon agriculture and the wool-growing industry. For a time the new discoveries seemed to have opened an industrial era in Spain. But before long the influx of precious metals, rapid after the conquest of Mexico, more rapid after the conquest of Peru, and immense after the discovery of the silver mines of Potosi, began to raise the prices of commodities in Spain far above the level current in other countries. This made Spain a bad seller and a profitable market. In spite of all the laws against export of treasure, the merchants managed to exchange their wares of foreign manufacture for Spanish bullion, and to transport it beyond the border. The trade with the Spanish colonies stimulated competition. The legislation of 1552 encouraged import and discouraged export in the interests of the inhabitants of Spain. The industries that had flourished began once more to shrink. The influence of treasure, with the appearance of wealth which it brought to so many, discouraged exertion, always distasteful to the Spaniards, and by the end of the reign of Charles V, the period of industrial activity was already in its decline. This was not due to the severity of taxation. Having regard to the rise of prices, the taxes of Spain probably became lighter during the period, but to the natural action of the circumstances upon the national temperament, aided by bad laws and a misconceived economic policy but the worst results of these forces and methods fall outside our period. The returns from the colonies enriched the government and individuals rather than the nation. The fifth share of the treasury in all treasure imported and other profits from colonial trade brought the revenue from this source in 1551 to 400,000, and in 1556 to seven hundred thousand ducats. The whole treasure of the Indian fleet was seized for the first time in 1535 by way of loan, and the evil precedent was followed in later years, until forbidden by a law of Philip 
in 1567. In the government of the Indies Charles took a lively interest, and his belief in their future was not to be shaken. His relations with his great adventurers were not always happy. Cortés ended his days in a maze of litigation. Fernando Pizarro was imprisoned in 1539 for a long period. Francisco was killed by the insurgents, against whom the home government gave him insufficient support. Gonzalo Pizarro was executed for rebellion in 1548. But the difficulties of controlling these autocratic soldiers at a distance of 4,000 miles accounts for many misunderstandings, and the natural tendency to local despotism and virtual independence required constant supervision and suggested suspicion. In regard to the treatment of the natives, and the question of the encomiendas, Charles' policy was humane, though his measures were only in part successful. He lent a ready ear to the representations of Las Casas, and supported the missionaries against the colonists. On the whole, his colonial policy achieved its objectives. The natives were preserved from extermination nor universal slavery while the provinces of Mexico, Peru, Bolivia, northern Chile, with Venezuela, New Granada, and Central America, were in his reign reduced to order and tolerable government. The spice trade with the Moluccas he endeavoured at one time to secure for the Spaniards, but in 1529 he was content to leave the monopoly to the Portuguese, in return for an ample money compensation. The provinces of the Netherlands inherited by Charles were substantially increased before his death. The French enclave of Tournay was conquered in 1521. After a long period of civil war, Friesland was finally annexed in 1523. The expulsion of the Bishop of Utrecht by the Duke of Gelders was the excuse for the acquisition of the temporal sovereignty of this important diocese by Charles in 1527, and the city of Utrecht was reconquered in 1528. The endless struggle with the Duke of Gelders did not end with the death of Charles of Egmont in 1538, but the rapid campaign of Charles against the Duke of Cleves resulted in the final incorporation of Gelders with the Burgundian possessions in 1543. Groningen and the neighbouring territory had been acquired in 1536. In 1543, Charles forced also Cambrai to accept a garrison. Liège, though still in nominal independence, was brought more and more under Burgundian influence. Its bishop, Evra de la Marque, maintained with Charles almost unbroken friendship until his death in 1538. Then Charles procured the election of his uncle George, the bastard son of Maximilian. Charles used the territory of Liège as his own, building on it the fortress of Marienburg, 1546, and after the capture of this town, Charlemont, and Philippeville in 1554. Thus 
the area of Burgundian supremacy was widened and its boundaries rectified, and in 1548 the status of the provinces with reference to the empire was revised. The whole of them was included in the Burgundian circle. They were declared not to be subject to the laws of the empire. They were bound, however, to contribute to imperial subsidies, and received in return the protection of the empire. The effect of this measure was to sever the connection between the Empire and the Netherlands, for the protection was a figment, and the contribution remained unpaid. The suzerainty of France over Flanders and Artois had been renounced in 1529, and thus the Burgundian possessions became a single and independent whole. The pragmatic sanction of 1548 further declared that the law of succession for all the provinces should be henceforth the same, and prevented the danger of a divided inheritance. The regency of Margaret of Savoy, which ended in 1530, and that of Maria of Hungary, which terminated in 1552, were both directed by the supreme will of Charles though much discretion was left to these able and faithful vice-regents. The centralization of the government was carried further. Councils of state and of finance for the whole aggregate were established. A central court of appeal was set up at Malines, though its authority was not universally accepted. The states-general for all the principalities were frequently summoned, and although their decisions were not legally binding on the several states, every effort was made to enforce the will of the majority upon every district. Here, as elsewhere, Charles respected the constitution, and did not attempt to enforce his will against the vote of the states. Many instances are on record in which he was obliged to give way. The newly acquired provinces were not immediately incorporated in the Assembly of States-General. In the Netherlands, as in his other dominions, Charles endeavoured to enforce his will upon the Church. But the rival interests of the great alien seas, possessing ecclesiastical authority over the chief part of his territory, rendered this difficult and his plan for the creation of six national dioceses failed, according to the opposition of the existing prelates and the Roman see. But in the matter of heresy he succeeded in holding his own for his lifetime. Early in 1521, before the Diet of Worms, he issued his first edict in the Netherlands against Luther. By repeated laws increasing in stringency, he kept, if not the reformed opinions, at any rate their public expression within bounds, and the only serious danger of an outbreak in the Netherlands under Charles was at the time of the Anabaptist movement at Münster, 1535, when the attempted seizure of Amsterdam by those sectaries led to a more rigorous persecution of them in various parts of the Netherlands. 
the Inquisition was established on a secular basis, for Charles could not afford to give this powerful instrument into the hands of alien bishops or the Holy See. But under the surface the forces were growing. The movement was amorphous and heterogeneous. Lutheranism in the north, Zwinglian views in the south, Anabaptist doctrine among the more violent, and towards the end of the reign the more methodical and better organised Calvinistic system, were spreading in spite of the Inquisition. The persecution of Charles, which, although vigorous in appearance, was in effect not especially severe, succeeded in concealing rather than in preventing the spread of heresy. This legacy he left to his son. Indeed, though the Netherlands flourished under Charles, though their trade prospered through the connection with Spain and the Indies, though the wealth of Antwerp and Amsterdam increased year by year, though peace was preserved and apparent obedience, though territory was rounded off and hostile provinces incorporated, the seeds were being sown which bore fruit in the days of Philip. The pressure of taxation was severe. The Spanish garrisons introduced in the early years of Charles' reign were hated here as elsewhere. Religious causes of discord were constantly growing. Charles spent but a small part of his reign in the Netherlands, but his early years were passed there, and he was never a stranger, nor out of sympathy. His son was a Spaniard, and his home in Spain. The days of Margaret and Maria were to be followed by the rule of a different class of proconsuls with a different kind of instructions. Then the accumulated discontent, the weariness of long-continued burdens borne in a cause that was not their own, the strain of the prolonged strife with France, their natural friend, all the errors and mistaken policy of Charles, would make themselves felt. The issue of these things will be seen in a later volume. End of section 12 Recording by Tom Denham